Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right, so last week we talked about the Trinity, and we spent a long time talking about that. And I just kind of, kind of in my prayer, I, I wanted to mention it in my prayer, but I wanted to remind us tonight, sometimes when you study the attributes of God and you study these things, you can get so wrapped up in the information that you lose sight of why you're studying it. So J.I. Packer's written a book called Knowing God, and in it he says, yes, it's good to know about God, but we know about God in order to know God. So is there a difference in knowing about God and knowing God? One's information that we take in, which is important, it informs what we're supposed to believe, but it's always to lead us to worship and to know that God personally. So what we're going to talk about tonight are some key attributes of God, some attributes that may be some that you may have never thought of before, and then um, we're going to look at some heresies and some other world religions tonight, okay? So let's first of all, let's just talk about the big one. And that is the holiness of God. And let's turn to Isaiah chapter 6. You really can't say that there's one attribute of God because he's got multiple attributes. And you really can't pit one attribute over another and say, well, you know, his love's more important than his justice and his mercy's more important than his power. I mean, you can't do that because he's God. But there is one attribute of God that is repeated three times, and we see it in this section of Isaiah, and we also see it in the book of Revelation, and it's the holiness of God. So if there would be one overarching attribute of God that would define all of his other characteristics, it would probably be his holiness. So we'd say his love is holy, his mercy is holy, his power is holy, his grace is holy. Everything about him is, is holy. And we're going to describe that, what that means here in just a few moments. So let's look at Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, actually. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king." The Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. There's a, there's a lot of things that are going on in this passage of Scripture, but I just want to kind of Describe what's going on here and how, how Isaiah sees God. So the first thing that, that Isaiah is confronted with is the royal sovereignty of God. What's the first thing he sees? He sees the Lord sitting upon a what? 
a throne. A throne represents power, majesty, royalty. And it says the, the, the train of his robe filled the temple. So what Isaiah sees here is God Almighty, the king on his throne, ruling and reigning in absolute sovereignty. And so there's this kingly majesty of God that we've got to wrap our minds around. He's the king, he's the ruler, he's the monarch, he sits on his throne, he's all-powerful, he is in his temple, heaven, on the throne. Now this is obviously a vision that Isaiah sees. So the first thing that Isaiah sees here is just this, the majesty of God as king, that he's the powerful king. But then, not only was he, was he confronted with God's kingliness, or God's sovereign power, but Secondly, he was confronted with the absolute holiness of God. Now, what does he see? He sees these flying creatures called seraphim. Seraphim. And what are these seraphim crying out to one another? What are they saying? Holy, holy, holy. Three, three times holy. It's the only time we ever have a three-time pattern of God. You never hear, the, now the Bible says God is love. But you never hear the Bible say, God is love, 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 or God is grace, 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 or God is mercy, mercy, mercy. It's always holy, holy, holy. Now, what in the world are these flying creatures called seraphim? The word seraphim in the Hebrew language means burning ones. And what are they doing? You guys tell me, what are they doing? How many wings do they have? Six. Okay, with, with some wings, what are they doing? Okay, they're covering their face. They're covering their feet. And they're flying. Okay, so let's, let's talk about the symbolism there of what they're doing with these six wings. Why do you think they would cover their face? God is too holy to look upon. He's, he's pure. He's majestic. They're, why do you think they're covering their feet? What did God say to Moses when he saw him at the burning bush? Take off your sandals because you're on holy ground. Okay, so they're covering their eyes because God's too pure and holy to look at. They're covering their feet because it's, it's holy. It's a holy place. They're flying, meaning that they're, they're ready to worship. They're ready to obey. They're in a posture of being ready to do whatever God commands them to do because they're, they're divine beings. And so Isaiah sees this. Now, is that enough to freak you out? To see God on the temple, in, on the throne, and the train of his robes filling everything, and then these flying creatures are coming out. And then notice what else happens. Verse 4, there's an earthquake. The foundation of the threshold shook, and the voice of him who called out of the house was filled with smoke. So not only is God there in all of his kingly majesty, not only are these flying creatures there, but there's almost like an earthquake and there's smoke. And what does Isaiah do? Does Isaiah say, this is awesome, God. I'm going to give you a high five. Does, is that what, I mean, does Isaiah, does, does Isaiah say, man, this is, you know, God's, God's my homeboy. This is awesome. God and I are buds. You know, I'm just kind of, I'm just like God. He's, he's, you know, he and I are, are really similar. What does he do? What's his response? Yeah, his response is one of utter terror. Utter terror. He says, woe is me, for I am lost. When Isaiah, when he says, woe is me, it's not like sometimes when we say, woe is me, what do we say? Woe is me. Life stinks. Woe is me. Everything's bad. That's not what it means in the Old Testament. When you say woe, it means you're pronouncing a curse on yourself. Basically, you're saying, I'm toast. 
and I should be in hell right now. It's basically, if you paraphrase what Isaiah is saying, I am toast. I'm about to die. I'm in the presence of a holy God. I should not be living right now. And then he says, I'm lost. Woe is me, for I'm, I'm undone. I'm lost. I'm lost. Some of your translations may say undone. It re- re- literally means that Isaiah was coming apart at the seams. He was unraveling before God. This was a traumatic experience for him. To be in the presence of a holy God, terror-stricken, on the ground, wanting to die in God's presence. And what does he confess? It's interesting. He confesses a personal sin here. He says, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Now, we don't know if if Isaiah was a foul-mouthed guy, but maybe he's confessing his foul mouth. I'm a man of unclean lips. God, I I I have a potty mouth. And I live among a people who have potty mouths. And so he confesses his personal sin. And what was his sin? His sin was what he was saying. Whether it was, whether it was cuss words, whether it was blasphemies, whatever it was, it's, something unclean is coming out of his mouth. He was guilty. He was unraveling. He was dead on the ground. R.C. Sproul's written a book, Holiness of God. I, I've given this quote many times, but I think it's probably the best definition of holiness This is what R.C. Sproul says. When the Bible calls God holy, it means primarily that God is transcendentally separate. He's separate. He's so far above us. He's so far beyond us that He almost seems foreign to us. God is too great for us. He's too awesome. He makes difficult demands on us. He's the mysterious stranger who threatens our security. In His presence, we quake and tremble. Meeting Him personally may be our greatest trauma without Jesus. I would add. Meeting God without Jesus is going to be people's greatest trauma on that final day because they're going to be in the presence on the day of judgment in the presence of a holy God, a transcendent God, a separate God, a God who is the Lord. He's on the throne. He's majestic. And yet, what does Isaiah say? My eyes have seen the King. I've literally seen God with my own eyes. And then to make matters worse, what happens here? Look at verse 6. One of the flying creatures comes with the burning coal and a tong from the altar and starts coming towards him. (laughs) Closer and closer and touches his lips. Now, at first glance, we may think, that's torture. That's weird. But where was Isaiah's sin? It was on his lips. But notice the wording here. What we see here in this extreme moment of unraveling in acute awareness of personal guilt, we see a picture of the gospel. We see the beautiful atonement of God. What does God say when he goes and he puts the coal and basically brands Isaiah's mouth? What does he say there? Verse 7. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is what? Taken away and your sin atoned for. Your guilt is taken away. This is the announcement of the gospel, isn't it? Isn't that what the gospel tells us? When you trust Christ for salvation, what's the announcement to us? Because of Jesus' death, your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. You don't have to bear that guilt. You don't have to bear that sin. Now, the word atoned for is an interesting word. That's where we get the word Yom Kippur. The Day of Atonement, Kippur, it really means to cover. 
to forgive, to cleanse. So think about where Isaiah was when he started this journey. He's on the ground, maybe in a puddle, because of his, and he's totally unraveling in the presence of a holy God. And then, where is he now? He's been forgiven by this holy God. In Psalm 133 through 4, what does it say? If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there's forgiveness that you may be feared. What would happen if God took a record of our sin? Like, really? And kept that record? Now think about sin for a minute, because when you guys are thinking of sin, what are you thinking about? You're thinking about outward action, right? The things I do. But sin is also your thoughts. Whoops, this is not working. It's your deeds, your thoughts, and your words. And even your your attitude. So... In a given day, I can tell you, just like before I got here, I probably committed three or four sins because things weren't going the way I wanted to. And I was having a bad attitude because we were running late. And I was trying to change Zach's pants, and he had a, he had a um, what were those called, uh, sweatpants, and the little drawstring got stuck, and I'm like, come on. So I'm getting mad at the drawstring, and then he didn't want to get in the car, and so I'm like, Zach, we got to get going. And, and everything, and then um, Don brought her computer to church to see if she could get on the network, and so I'm like, that's why I was running late, and so I'm, in my mind, I'm thinking, Arr! you know, have you ever had those times, like, Arr! and so, you know, if God kept a record of those wrongs, just in those, like, 30 minutes, past 30 minutes, pile that up by 80, let's say I lived to be 80 years, that's a lot of sin, just with me, now multiply that by everybody in this room, that's a lot of sin that if God, and what does the psalmist say? If God should do that, who could stand? Who, who, could, who could stand? And the answer is nobody. You'd be like Isaiah, I'm dead, I'm toast, I'm unraveling, I don't deserve to be here. But then notice the second part of the psalm. But with you there's forgiveness. So even in that moment of unraveling, see the first response of Isaiah there was, he was it was terror fear. I'm terrified. I am terrified at this holy God. But then, after seeing the forgiveness of sin and seeing God come and cleanse him through this atonement, there's a new type of fear. It's not terror fear, it's worship fear. I think we've talked about this before, the two types of fear of the Lord. One type of fear is a worship fear. A worship fear is what we as Christians fear God. Worship fear means I, were, I know God is God, He's sovereign, He's ultimate, and He's awesome, and I stand in awe of Him because He's powerful and He's my God. I worship Him in fear. That's a worship fear. A terror fear is what lost people experience, where they fear God as a judge who can send them to hell. And they should fear Him. The problem is most people don't fear God. Um, they don't have a terror fear of God. But then at the end, what does Isaiah do after this whole experience? In verse 8, he responds in obedient worship. What does he do? He heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then he said, Here am I, send me. And so after he had this encounter with the living God, the holiness of God, the power of God, the majesty of God, the salvation of God, then God empowers him to go out and be a messenger. And so we need to 
have a mixture of both of these in our lives, this kind of fear of God, a mixture of fear um, and awe. And so the holiness of God, the separateness of God, the transcendence of God. So let's just stop and talk about this for a moment. Do you think, let's not talk about the world because the world has no concept of this, okay? So we don't expect the world to have the same categories we do because they're lost. But let's just talk about the evangelical world, the church world, the world that we're familiar with. Do you think in the church world at large, we really talk about or promote or understand the holiness of God? I'm just going to throw it out there. You guys are all kind of shaking your head. Why? What's your reasoning? If you're going to shake your head, you've got to tell me why. Yeah. How pure? Okay. 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 And we tend to focus on what's best for us. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, we, we want to sometimes pit one of God's attributes over other attributes. And so, like, you talk to people out on the street, and what are they going to say? God is love. Is that true? Yes, absolutely, God is love. But how do you experience God's love? You can only experience through Christ. Okay, yes, God is love and God loves sinners, but if you die without Christ, you're not going to experience God's love for eternity. What are you going to experience? His holiness, His justice. Um, And so I think sometimes it's important for us to have a balance. We, want, we don't want to get too balanced one way or the other. If we, if, we, if we focus too much on God's like justice and righteousness, then we can kind of almost be like legalistically in this whole thing where God's mad all the time. and We don't want to be over there. The other extreme is you can, all you talk about is God's love, and then it kind of gets mushy, and you kind of, there's no right or wrong, and people can kind of do whatever they want because, after all, God's loving. And you, you go too far on that side. I think you need to have a balance of those, Okay. What was it forms a misconception of what's going to happen because I know people say, well, he's a good person and God's a loving God. He would not let him, he wouldn't send him. Okay. Did you guys hear what Dodie said? That's, I hear that a lot. God's a loving God. He's a good person. God wouldn't definitely send him to hell. He's, he's too good of a person. Well, what's their definition of good? When you compare it to God, is anybody good? We often compare ourselves to others. And we always find somebody that's like worse than us that we compare ourselves to. <laughs> I'm good compared to him. But they, that, that, like you said, Dodie, there's a misconception that I'm okay with this God of the universe and everything's kind of hunky-dory. But without Christ, it's not, you're not okay. Yes, God is holy. Yes, God punished the sin. But the beauty of the gospel is he did that in Jesus. He punished sin in Jesus. He punished the sin in Christ. Through Christ we have forgiveness. Through Christ we have uh, eternal life. And it has to come through Jesus. Um, it's not just a generic God. So let's, talk, let, let's backtrack. This has just kind of popped into my mind. When you see movie stars and you see singers and you see um, especially country singers and you see athletes like thanking God, after they win an award or they made the winning touchdown. Do you think most, most people, okay, I believe in, okay, God. So when I ask a person, if they say I believe in God, here's my follow-up question. This is because I'm a pastor. I don't expect you to do this because only a pastor does this. 
So you believe in God. Okay, so let me, let me ask you a specific question. Do you believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? Is that your God? And if they can't say yes to that, then it's not the God of the Bible. Because what have I done? I've combined the Old Testament definition of God with the New Testament definition of God to kind of give a comprehensive definition, right? Because a Jew could say it's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but a Jew can't say it's the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So um, there's a lot of generic God talk out there, don't you think? Or goddess talk. Um, Or let's just say this. I've heard a lot of people say there's no difference between Allah and God. And we're not going to talk about Islam tonight. We'll get to that eventually, but I hear that a lot. You know, we're all basically, you know, Jewish, Judaism, Islam, Christianity, we're all basically worshiping the same God. We just have different names for him. Is that true? No. Okay. So let's, let's use a big word next. We're going to talk about the immutability of God. Does anybody want to take a guess at what immutable is? Let me tell you what our confession of faith says, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. His perfect knowledge extends to all things past, present, and future, including the future decisions of His creatures. Here's what the immutability of God means. It means that God does not change. That He is constant. That He can be counted upon. That He is sovereign. That He knows all things. That He's not surprised by things. It's not as if, it's not like God and the devil are playing a chess match and God doesn't know what the next move is going to be. And the devil takes him by surprise. God's, God's like, oh no, I better react. God has exhaustive knowledge of all things that have happened in the past. He has knowledge of all things that are happening right now. And He has knowledge of all things that are going to happen in the future. And He doesn't change. He doesn't react. Okay? So let's look at some scriptures that teach this. Numbers 23, 19. God is not man. The Mormon should read this, as we talked about last week. God is not man that he should lie, or son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Does God change his mind? Does God change? Is God a man? Can God lie? No. Okay. 1 Samuel 15, 29. And also, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he's not a man that he should have regret. They're basically saying God is God and humans are humans. There's a separation. But here's what's happening in our culture. The gap between God, like what did we say the holiness of God was? It's his transcendence, his differentness, his separateness, you know, and man, we are, we are the creation. We're the, pot, we're the clay. He's the potter. The gap between the, the transcendence of God and the elevation of man is getting smaller. And what I mean by that is what we're seeing now is that man keeps getting closer to closer to want to not just, like, wants to be God. What was Satan's sin? He wanted to be God. What was the Tower of Babel's sin? They wanted to be God. What was Adam and Eve's sin? They wanted to be God. What's the big sin that people would probably articulate today, but there's a big sin in our culture. People want to be God. They want to be their own God. They want to be God. And the scripture here says God is not a man. He's not not one of us. He's he's separate. He's transcendent. Malachi 3.6, For I, the Lord, do not change. 
Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. I don't, God says, I don't change, I don't lie, I don't regret, I don't, you know, I, I don't change. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. For I am God and there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Highlight that verse in your Bible because that's probably the most powerful verse, verse about the sovereignty of God. Let's just talk about that verse for a moment before we move on. I am God and there is no other. What is that teaching us? The first commandment. I am God and there is no other. Meaning that Every other God or every other deity or every other lowercase g God is not God. There is none like me. I'm absolutely separate. I'm absolutely holy. I am God. There's none like me. And I declare the end from the beginning, meaning what? I know how it started and I know how it's going to end. From ancient times and things that haven't happened yet. So God has knowledge of things in the past. God has knowledge of things in the future. God stands outside of time. God is omniscient, meaning all-knowing. God is omnipresent. He's present everywhere. God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. And he says, my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purpose, meaning that God's going to do what God's going to do. There's nothing that God can't do except for lie or things against his, his nature. But God's going to do his purpose. Now, James 1.17 says this. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God doesn't change. God doesn't, you know, think about Greek mythology for a moment. You guys know anything about Greek mythology? Have you studied Zeus and Aphrodite? Those Greeks, gods and goddesses, man, if they got up on the wrong side of the bed and had a bad hair day, they were throwing lightning bolts. And they were always changing their mind, and they were always having issues. And so, you know, like Greek gods, man, you, had to, you lived in fear to make sure that you weren't messing up your, 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 your mojo, I guess, with that god. And so, because they were always changing their minds. Aren't you thankful that we have a god who's solid that doesn't change, that he is on his throne, that he is powerful, that his purpose is going to stand? So God is unchanging in his being, meaning he, he can't go from being God to not being God. He's unchanging in his perfections, meaning he can't be less than God or he can't somehow sin or have, have less perfections. He's unchanging in his purposes, meaning that he can't change his mind or just change, you know, change what he's going to do. And God's unchanging in his promises. Think about this. What if God was changing in his promises? Oh, by the way, I didn't really mean Revelation where I win in the end. Oh, by the way... I'm not sure if you're eternally secure. You, you, you know, in the end, Satan might just win. What if God changed his promises? Okay, so we have a God who's unchanging. Now, let's talk about a modern heresy. And maybe you've never heard of this heresy. Maybe you've, you've never heard of, of this movement, but um, it's called open theism or the openness movement, or some people call it process theology. And I'll explain to you why it's called openness or process theology or open theism. Um, theism is just a word that means God. So open theism means, um, where's my marker? O- open theism basically means this. I'll give you the definitions, but it means that God is open to, um, God is open to not knowing the future. 
And it's called process theology because God is in the process of taking in knowledge so that he can make decisions as they happen. Okay? And all of you scratch your head like, that makes no sense. These aren't like Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons. These are actually people that would consider themselves Bible-believing evangelicals. They would believe this. Anybody ever heard of a guy named Greg Boyd? Okay? Um, he's probably the most popular writer. Um, anybody ever heard of John Eldridge? Wild at heart guy. He kind of leans towards open theism. He hasn't come out and said that. But let's talk about five key elements of open theism. Um, this has been around since probably about the late 70s. And um, I have a friend that, I, that we were good friends in college. He was in my wedding. And last time we spoke, like right, before, right when Zach was born, which was in 2000, um, I think he was going down the path of becoming an open theist. And it was really kind of sad. I'm not sure where he is now. Um, and so uh, he went off to seminary and, and got too much wackiness. Um, so if, not, not at a seminary I would have gone to. I think he went to a, a different type of seminary. So let's talk at five key elements of open theism. Here's number one. Open theists affirm a qualified omniscience, meaning that God, God is all-knowing, but we're going to qualify it, meaning that... Since the future does not exist to know, God cannot know the future. Okay, does that make sense? Future hasn't happened yet, so how can God know it? Because all of you in this room are free to make choices. And faced with like 15 million choices, you could choose 15 million different ones. And God doesn't know which choice you're going to make because it hasn't happened yet. So God is all-knowing of events in the past, and God's knowing of what's going on right now. He can see it, but he doesn't know what's going to happen in the future. That's the key tenet of open theism, okay? And some of you are just shaking your heads like, how do they believe this? Which is good. I'm glad you're doing that as opposed to saying, yeah, I can get that. (laughs) Open theists reject the kingship metaphor of God's sovereignty in favor of a parental at-risk sovereignty. They don't like terminology that God is king, that God is sovereign, that God is a monarch, that God rules. They're more like God is a parent that takes risks with his kids. God lets his kids make choices, and he doesn't know exactly what his kids' choices are going to, they're going to make, and so God gives them a lot of freedom. So here's, here's, here's what God's goal is. The, he's a risk-taking God. God takes risks because he doesn't know the future, so he's going to take a risk, i.e., God didn't know Adam and Eve were going to eat the fruit. So when, he, when they ate the fruit and sinned, it was like God went, oh, that, I didn't see that one coming. We better make a plan here, which doesn't make sense because First Peter says Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, and the plan was known before the foundation. So, so even the gospel was planned before time that Jesus would die on the cross. But see, the risk-taking God has a goal for his creation. God has a goal for everybody. He has got a goal, like a parent. You've got a goal for your kids. I want them to graduate. I want them to get married. I want them to get a good job. You have a goal, but you can't control that. So his free creatures can thwart or even frustrate the purposes of God. Rather than emphasizing God's omnipotence, open theists affirm God's omnicompetency, meaning he's got all ability. God has ability to adapt to circumstances. He's not all-knowing, but he's, he's a really good adapter. He's a multitasker, this God. God can multitask. 
And, he, and when he's surprised, he, he's really good at making split decisions to make sure things happen. Okay? All right? Number three, open theists highlight God as a relational being, which we would too, but love is the preeminent attribute of God. Love trumps every other attribute. They don't talk about His holiness. They don't talk about His sovereignty. They don't talk about His righteousness. The most important attribute to them is God is love, and because God loves His creatures so much, He's not going to do anything to interfere with their free choices. As a matter of fact, He doesn't know their free choices. He's a parent at risk because He loves us so much that He wants us to make our own choices, and if we fail at those choices, He's really good at picking up the pieces on the fly. Okay? Do you want to... Superhuman being, yeah, he's like super mom or super nanny or something. Do you, let me just stop. Do you want to worship a God like that? No. Do you have any confidence that he's going to work things out for your good, that he's going to be counted upon, or is he just kind of like a, a higher version of you, just maybe, you know, more, more efficient? Okay. You hope not? Yeah, all of us are saying, I hope not. Yeah, we're in really sad shape. Four, the central component of open theist position is human libertarian freedom. Now, obviously, we're not going to argue whether, you know, the whole issue of free will and and freedom and human freedom. Obviously, no matter what spectrum you're on, humans make choices. We're free to make choices. We We have freedom. But what they take it to an extreme, basically saying this, humans are so free that they bear the primary responsibility for developing the future. God doesn't have a plan for the future. God doesn't have a purpose for the future. God reacts to the future, and ultimately he loves humans so much he's going to let them take the ball and run with it, and wherever they end up, God's going to adapt. I don't know how they deal with prophecy or revelation. Now, here's the last one. This is more of a personal one that they deal with. Open theists conceive of their viewpoint as a solution to the problem of evil and some forms of human suffering. God knows neither the content nor the consequences of his creature's future free actions. God, therefore, cannot prevent evil. Because God doesn't know what's going to happen. So evil is going to happen, and God can do nothing about it. Let me ask you a question. Just by observation in your own life and then just watching the news, Are there times where God prevents evil from happening that could have happened? Are there times when he doesn't? God is sovereign and he chooses that, but does God prevent evil? Even in some of the worst things, like think about um, like some of our national catastrophes like um, 9-11. It could have been a whole lot worse. Um, Oklahoma City bombing could have been a whole lot worse. The Boston Marathon bombing could have been a whole lot worse. Some of these mass shootings could have been a whole lot worse. So who knows? Think about this. Who knows how many terrorist attacks our government has prevented from happening that we never know about? That God has, God has used our leaders and people in the CIA and FBI and Homeland Security or whatever to prevent these things from happening. Um, and so anyway, I hope you realize that Biblically, these guys don't have a leg to stand on, but they're pretty popular. Why do you think this viewpoint would be popular? I mean, you're all shaking your head like, this is weird. But why do you think it would be in some ways would be popular among Christians? <laughs> looks, looks to me like it's laid out so pretty much I can do what I want to do, and God will just work it out anyway, so that's cool. Live however I want. Yeah. No accountability. No accountability. 
besides God's love. So. God's love, so I can do whatever I, you know. Yeah. I mean, it sounds, it's kind of like willy-nilly Christianity. I, I mean, I can do whatever I want. It's kind of like this. It's almost like, I really, really love to sin. Really love to sin. And God really, really loves to forgive. Man, we've got a great relationship. Let's keep this thing going. Because I'm just going to keep sinning, and he's just going to keep on forgiving, and he doesn't really know what I'm going to do. So, hey, I'm not really accountable for anything because I'm free to make my own choices. And so, you know, I'm in the driver's seat, and, and, you know, God, come pick up the pieces if I mess up, if you can react fast enough. Now, let's look at some scriptures that teach the absolute exhaustive sovereignty of God. And I'm kind of loaded them up here, okay, because I want to kind of say, hey, here's what the Bible says, okay? And, you know, you don't even have to argue with these scriptures. Just let them speak on their own. I mean, you don't have to even give commentary. You just let the scriptures, okay, there it is. So Psalm 33, 8 through 11, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart to all generations. Boom. Got it? Psalm 135, 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth and in the seas and all the deeps. Proverbs 16, 4. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. The Lord's made everything for its purpose. When you go to Las Vegas and you play the slot machine, just know this verse, Proverbs 16, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Even when you play dice, God's got it figured out. He knows what you're going to roll. I need double six. God knows what you're going to roll before you roll it. And even incidental things like that. Isaiah 14, 27. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out. Who will turn it back? The answer is what? Nobody. What does it mean to annul something? To cancel it, to, to stop it. Basically, God's got a plan. Who's going to stop it? Nobody. Okay, let's go to the next scripture. Isaiah 29, 16. You turn things upside down. Oh, yeah, you turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say of its maker? He did not make me or, or the thing formed say of him who formed it. He has no understanding. You turn things upside down. You're trying to be what? The potter. You're trying to be the one in charge. You're trying to be the one that's the creator. You're trying to be the one that makes everything. And God says, you've turned it upside down. I'm the potter. You're the clay. And I have the right to do what I want with you because you're my creation. I set the rules. Isaiah 45, 9. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. Do we have any right to call back to God and say, God, what are you doing? What are you doing, God? You don't, you don't know what you're doing. And that's what, that's what Isaiah is saying. He's like, that's stupid. You can't do that. He's the potter. We're the clay. The clay can't say to the potter, hey, why are you doing this? Why are you fashioning me this way? I don't really want to be a, I don't want to be a pot shaped like this. I want to be a pot shaped like this. God, what are you doing? Ouch, God, that hurts too much. You're squeezing a little bit too hard on the, on, you know, mold me a little bit softer. Oh, God, don't put me in the furnace to make me get harder. What are you doing, God? That's like, it's almost comical what Isaiah is doing here. Why would you say that is basically what he's saying. 
Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. I think we just did this, didn't we? So you get it again for emphasis. Isaiah 64, 8. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are our potter and we are all the work of your hand. Daniel 2, 21. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. So our next president, God knows who it's going to be, and God's already determined it. We don't know who it is, but God does, and He's determined it. So the election's rigged. God's rigged it. We still vote, but in the end, God's rigged it. You may not like the outcome. So you may not like the outcome of elections, but it's, it's who God wants to be in there. And sometimes, this is a side note, sometimes God gives you what you ask for. He did that with Saul, the king. Israel's like, we want a guy that's tall. All the nations have tall kings. Let's pick a guy that's tall. Saul was tall. That's about the only thing he had going for him. <laughs> it's a terrible king. And God says, okay, you want a tall king? Take him. And then really he anointed David as the, as the true king. Daniel 4.35, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven, so God does whatever he wants in the heavens, and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay to him or say to him, what have you done? So God does what he wants in the universe, in the heavens, God does what he wants on the earth, and nobody dare say to him, God, what are you doing? What have you done? You don't have the right to do that. And then my favorite one is from Job, at the very end of Job, Job kind of puts his hand over his mouth and says, I, I you know, I, I have no reason to speak, God. You're, you're God. He says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Okay? Now, at Emmanuel, we sing some songs. We haven't, sang, we haven't sung Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise in a long time, but let me read to you the lyrics of this song and see if it gives us a good picture of who God is. It's not on your sheet, but let me give to you, um, let me give you the lyrics to Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise. Immortal, I won't sing it. Immortal, invisible, God only wise. Immortal, invisible, God only wise. In light and accessible, hid from our eyes. Most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days. Almighty, victorious, thy great name we praise. Unresting, unhasting, and silent as light. Nor wanting, nor wasting, you rule in might. Your justice like mountains high soaring above. Your clouds which are fountains of goodness and love. To all life you give, to both great and small. and all life you live, the true life of all. We blossom and flourish as leaves on the tree and wither and perish, but you, but not changeth thee. You don't change. Great Father of glory, pure Father of light, your angels adore you, all veiling their sight. All praise we would render, O oh, help us to see, tis only the splendor of light hideth thee. Does that speak about the holiness and transcendence and majesty of God? Here's another one, one of my favorite ones that we sing. Eternal God unchanging, mysterious and unknown, your boundless love unfailing and grace and mercy show. Bright seraphim, now you know where the seraphim come. In endless flight around your glorious throne, they raise their voices day and night and praise to you alone. Hallelujah, glory be to our great God. Lord, we are weak and frail, helpless in the storm. Surround us with your angels. Hold us in your arms, our cold and ruthless enemy. His pleasure is our harm. Rise up, O Lord, and he will flee before our sovereign God. Let every creature in the sea and every flying bird, let every mountain, every field and valley of the earth, let all the moons and all the stars and all the universe sing praise to the living God who rules them by his word. 
Now, there are some Jesus is my boyfriend songs that are out there. Some of you know what I'm talking about? Some of you are like, I have no idea what he's talking about. There are some songs on Christian radio and some songs by groups that you have no idea if they're talking about a love relationship with their girlfriend or boyfriend or they're talking about God. Now, I'm not necessarily saying those songs are wrong, so I'm not going to be legalistic and say you shouldn't listen to those songs. But my question is, if a Mormon can sing it and a Jehovah's Witness can sing it and a Jewish person could sing it and even a non-Christian could sing it, is it truly a Christian song to God? Or is it just kind of more like confessing my love for God? Um, does anybody have an example? I don't have an example of one of those. To be honest with you guys, I'll, I'll, I'll make a confession here. I don't really listen to Christian radio. Um, it's not because I don't like want to. It's just I have an iPod, and I can choose what I want to listen to. And I've got Pandora through my car, through my Bluetooth. I can choose what I want to listen to. So I don't listen to K-Love, so I don't know what some of the new songs are. But are, are there examples of songs out there that are, what would be like innocuous in the sense that they're not really saying much, but they're kind of talking about God? I mean, I don't know. Does anybody have one off the top of their head? I don't want to be like slamming CCM, contemporary Christian. I don't know. Maybe, maybe they're getting better. I just know for a while there it was getting, it was like, they're not getting better? Okay. <laughs> Well, when I was growing up, we called them 7-Eleven songs. You sing the same seven thing, seven words 11 times. I love you, I love you, I love you. You're awesome, you're awesome, you're awesome. I love you, I love you, I love you. You're awesome, you're awesome, you're awesome. Are you talking about pizza? Are you talking about your girlfriend? Are you talking about the game? What are, what are you talking about? Because, you know, uh, to be honest with you guys, here's my, here's my honest thought. You may think, oh, I can't believe he'd say that. I'd rather listen to Journey or Van Halen, or somebody that at least I know is non-Christian that's singing about their girlfriend, <laughs> maybe not pure, but then, then, then hear a Christian like, what's he talking about? But anyway, I'm just, you know, some of you might have a different opinion of me now that I listen to, but I'm just saying sometimes you, at least you know what you're getting. I know these guys are non-Christians, and I know, they're, I know what they're talking about. So anyway, let's talk about a new... Um, not a new, let's talk about another attribute of God that maybe you've never thought about, and that's the jealousy of God. You're like, wait a minute, jealousy? I thought we weren't supposed to be jealous. Are we supposed to be jealous? Are we supposed to be envious? No. What does it mean that God is jealous? Well, let's look in the Scriptures. Let's go to Exodus, because we actually have the wording in the Bible. Exodus chapter 20, verse 5. This is actually part of the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, verse 5. God's given the second commandment here about making um, carved images of him. And so Exodus 20, verse 5, You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. God says it. About himself, I am a jealous God. Okay, go to Exodus thirty-four, fourteen. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. 
The Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. Not only is he a jealous God, he says, my name is jealous. Okay, Deuteronomy 4.24. Let's go there real quick. Exodus Numbers, I'm Exodus, Leviticus Numbers, Deuteronomy 4.24. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Okay, so we have three Old Testament passages here that speak about God being a jealous God. What does it mean that God's a jealous God? He's not willing to share. He's the only God. Okay, He's the only God. He's not willing to share His glory. He's not willing to share His worship. He's not willing to um, have anybody take place over Him. Now, for humans, we'd say, man, that's pretty egotistical. Who do you think you are? You're the only one, and only people are going to worship you. Who do you think you are? To a human, we'd say you're an egotistical maniac. But we're not talking about a person. Who are we talking about? God. Does God have the right to say, I am the only and there are no others? Now, think about this, just on human terms. I think it's appropriate at times for humans to be jealous in this way. Okay? I, as husband to Dawn need to do everything in my power to protect her and honor her and um, serve her in a sense that I'm jealous for her name. I'm jealous for her reputation. And so anything that's going to tarnish her reputation, anything that's going to tarnish our relationship. So if some guy comes in and wants to kind of have his way, as a husband, what, what, a, what a bad husband would be like, oh, go ahead, she's yours. Would I be a good husband? No, a jealous husband in a good way would say, back off, dude. She is my wife. I'm protecting her honor. She belongs to me. I love her, and she's my only one. I'm jealous for my wife. Now, we admire that, don't we? Would anybody here say, man, Sean's just a jerk? <laughs> man, he really treats his wife bad. I don't know why. I don't understand. Would anybody here say Sean's? No. Nobody would say that's a jerk. Even on a human level, we'd say that's honorable. We understand it. That person is such, such a prized possession to him that he wants to honor them and he wants to protect that relationship no matter what. Now think about God. We are his bride. We are his people. And God wants the same for us. He's jealous because he wants to protect us. Because what happens when you go after other gods? You only hurt yourself. And so God's saying, I am so awesome and so worthy of worship and I want to protect you and honor you so much that I'm jealous for my name that there is no other and I want you to come and be a part of my family and I will do whatever I can to make sure that you don't blaspheme or, or dishonor me. I'm jealous for my name. And that's where we see there in Isaiah 48, 9 through 11. For my name's sake, that's the important one, for my name's sake, I defer my anger for the sake of my praise I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. That's kind of the jealousy of God. For my name's sake, for my purposes, I'm not going to share my glory. I'm doing it for the glory of my name. I'm a jealous God. In humans, we look at that and say it's not a good attribute, just envy, jealousy. But a righteous wanting to protect your name because it's awesome, because you're God and have the right to do that, that's a worthy trait in God. And he says, my name is jealous. 
Okay. So before we jump into other world religions, do you guys have any questions on what we've talked about tonight about some key attributes of God? His holiness, His unchangingness, His divine sovereignty, and His jealousy. These are things we often don't talk about, but they're attributes of God. Any questions or thoughts or comments? Is this God worthy of worship? All right, now for something completely different. Let's talk about Buddhism. Seriously. How do world religions and false belief systems view God? We've determined that God is the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has revealed himself in Trinity, one God, in essence, three distinct persons, co-equal, co-eternal, God is sovereign, God's powerful, God's eternal, God's jealous, God's holy, God's righteous, God's love. God is personal, He's infinite, He's holy. What do Buddhists? Anybody have any Buddhist friends or know anything about Buddhism? Okay. There's true, pure Buddhism that happens in like Asia, and then there's like an Americanized version of it, which is like Americanized version of everything means it's not pure. We're going to like make our own thing up. And so let's talk about Buddhism for a moment. Who's the founder of Buddhism? Siddhartha Gautama. I don't know if you've ever had to read. I had to read the book Siddhartha when I was in um, 10th grade English. I don't know if my teacher was a Buddhist, but she made us read that. And um, he was a prince from northern India. Actually, Buddhism comes from India, near modern-day Nepal, who lived about 563 to 483 B.C. So you're talking about four or 500 years before the birth of Christ is when this philosophy started in northern India around Nepal, India-Nepal area. There's about 400 million Buddhists worldwide and approximately 2.5 million in the United States. It's a pretty big number. So what does Buddhism teach? What do they believe? Well, here's, a, here's, here's the... Let me give you the... Um, this is the general description, and then we'll kind of break it down on what they believe. Buddhism is the belief system of those who follow the Buddha, the enlightened one. You guys ever seen pictures of the Buddha or statues of the Buddha? Big fat guy. Okay, so, he, so Siddhartha Gautama was, was the first Buddha, the first enlightened one, given by its founder. Saving oneself comes by following a path or a ritual or a regimen. And this comes by... Meditation and reciting mantras. It should be mantras. Worship is expressed as adoration of the Buddha and also of one's ancestors. So like in Asian countries where Buddhism is really big, they really, they really revere and worship their ancestors, um, ancestor worship. Buddhists struggle to make sense of this life and to live out one's expected dharma. Okay, so there's dharma and there's karma. I kind of have this in, in um, Hinduism too. And if David were here, our missionary to India, he'd explain it a lot better. Think of Dharma as your duty. This is, this is what you're supposed to do. These are, this is kind of the morality or the duty or the rules that you have to live by. Remember that show, Dharma and Greg? Do you remember that show? I think she was a Buddhist or a New Age or so. So Dharma is the rules you've got to live by. Karma, we'll talk about that in just a minute. Karma is kind of the... Um, the circumstances or the consequences or the things that happen to you as a result of your dharma. So if you do bad dharma, you get bad karma. 
If you do good dharma, you get good karma. And my dogma ran over your karma. Have you seen those, have you seen those license plates? Okay, so worship is expressed to the Buddha and one's ancestors. Buddha struggled to make sense of this life and to live out one's expected dharma as the painful and slow road to moksha. So there's a, there's a slow road to salvation. It's painful. It's grueling. It's a path. And you know you've reached it when all desire is eliminated and you basically um, achieve nirvana, this final path of enlightenment. Okay? Yes. Yep. Yep. And we'll get to that. Yeah, we'll get to Yeah, we'll get to that. Just, this is just kind of the overview. Let's get into their actual core beliefs. Buddhism, Buddhism is an impersonal religion of self-perfection, the end of which is death. So it's antithetical to Christianity. What's the, what's the end goal of Christianity? Eternal life. Their goal is to cease to exist in a state of selfless nirvana. Okay? Now, everything is summed up in four noble truths. There's the four noble truths of Buddhism. Number one, life is full of suffering. Well, that's easy just to observe, right? Do we suffer? Okay. Life is full of suffering. Number two, suffering is caused by cravings. The reason you suffer is because you want things. So they, biblically, they're not far off here, okay? They don't have it through the lens of the Bible, but does the Bible teach that we suffer? And does the Bible teach that we have sinful nature and flesh? Yes. The Bible calls that the flesh, okay? But here's what they say. Number three, suffering will cease only when cravings cease. So when you get around to not craving anything, when you get around to not sinning, then there won't be any more suffering. Do you see the like rat trap you're in there? Means what? I'm never going to not suffer because I'm always going to have cravings because I'm human. This can be achieved by following the noble eightfold path. So there's another path. There's another Dharma or duty or path you've got to do. Another work, works righteousness. So the, eighth, the, the, the eightfold path consists of um, having the right views, having the right aspiration, having the right speech, the right conduct, the right livelihood, the right effort, the right mindfulness, and the right contemplation. In other words, works-based righteousness. If I just do right things, but by whose standard? Now, there's, some, there's probably some, some, some teachings in Buddhism that kind of guide you on this, but that's all works-based righteousness, isn't it? If I just say the right things, do the right things, have the right thoughts, try hard, contemplate hard enough, think hard enough, then I will hopefully reach a state of nirvana and not have to suffer anymore. Wow. That, that gives me a lot of hope. Now, this is all determined... This is where it gets even worse. In the end, you really don't have control of all this because this is all determined by an impersonal law of moral causation called karma. Now, re- this is where Carla was talking about. Reincarnation is an endless cycle of continuous suffering and that the goal of life is to break out of the cycle by finally extinguishing the flame of life and entering to a permanent state of pure non-existence, nirvana. So I suffer enough, you die 
you're reincarnated and you may have to suffer more and you're reincarnated and you suffer more. Maybe by the 15th time you've learned how to achieve nirvana. So it's an endless cycle of dharma and karma. If I just follow the eight noble path steps, if I just do the right steps, I hope to not exist. But in reality, I'm not in control because there's this karma thing working. And if things go bad, I just can keep repeating it over and over again in reincarnation with the hopes that one day maybe I will cease to exist and have ultimate nirvana. Now, does that sound anything like Christianity or the Bible? It's totally opposite. The Bible has an answer for suffering. What's the Bible's answer for suffering? God entered into suffering in the person of Jesus Christ and Jesus suffered in our place and died in our place. And yes, there's suffering in the world. It's caused by human responsibility and choices. But one day God's going to put an end to suffering and we're going to live forever in our bodies in a new heaven and a new earth and God's going to make all things new. And it's not about what you do. It's about what God's done through Christ to save you. Okay? Now, let's... Any questions on Buddhism? I don't want to get deep into it because, I mean, I'm not, a, I'm, not a, I'm not an expert in Buddhism. I just know enough to be dangerous. Um, well, now, I hear people want to talk about karma all the time. Yeah. I mean, well, it's... Not necessarily a Buddhist, are they? No, it's like an Americanized version. It, it sounds spiritual, and it's, I mean, it's almost like cause and effect. I mean... We have an Americanized version of karma. We wouldn't call it karma, but it's like this. If I do good things in life, good things will happen to me. If I do bad things in life, bad things will happen to me. So I better do good things so good things happen. If I do bad things, bad things will happen. That's just karma. That's probably their conception of karma. But what's the problem? You can do good things and bad things can still happen to you. And you can do bad things and never face the consequences in this life. And so when people talk about karma, I think that they may not necessarily be Buddhists. They may. But I think they're more thinking, I really hope that my lucky stars line up and things work out good for me and cross my fingers, hope not to die, that I've got a good future coming and I really need to watch my back to make sure I make good choices because it's going to come back and bite me. I think that's the Americanized version of karma. I don't know if, that, if you would agree with that or if that's kind of what you think people are are saying when they say that without knowing the people and what they're... They've got bad karma. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they've got bad karma, meaning, you know, if something bad happens to somebody all the time, they must be doing something wrong. And so they've just got this bad karma hanging around. And so, what goes around comes around, yeah. What goes around comes around is karma. Yeah, there's no such thing as a free lunch. What goes around comes around. Um, yeah. It's kind of sad. I've never, like, really sat down and talked to a Buddhist, but I wonder if they're happy. I know one particular Buddhist, and the happiest person. Really? But it's very odd because, and he is self-proclaimed Jewish. So he's a syncretist, which means... Yeah, syncretism is when you combine two or more religions together into one, which is a very American way of doing things. Yeah. It's like... But I feel like that would be super confusing. It would be super... I'm a Jewish Buddhist. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't make any sense at all. No. I just... 
unless it's a self-deceiving happiness in the sense that... Because to think about it, if, if all you live for is to not exist and you're trying to get rid of suffering and you're trying to get rid of your cravings and you're trying as hard as you can to do these things but bad things keep happening, then it's almost like, when is it ever going to end? So your only hope is, I've got to suffer through this life. I hope to come back better in the next life. And the Bible says it's appointed for man to die once and after that face of judgment. So there's no such thing as reincarnation. So once they're dead, they're dead. Uh, I wonder, though, I could be wrong, but sort of I feel like a lot of Buddhists really are just following a philosophy. And in that case, like I can see that. You're like, just be a good person, yeah. treat people well. Yeah. Like as a philosophy, it makes more sense to me than as a religion. Yeah. It's more of a golden rule philosophy yeah. of I want to live a I want to live a, a quiet peaceful life of doing good to others so that it won't come around to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let's talk about New Age because what New Age has done is it's taken some of these Eastern religions and Americanized them, um, and so you see this more in America than you see around the world because um, we're kind of a hodgepodge of all these things. And so, really, New Age movement. Um, can be described as a westernized form of Eastern religious beliefs confined. But it's also, there's occultic practices, self-help, holistic medicines, and forms of astrology. So it's not just like Buddhism repackaged. They brought everything in. Astral projection, out-of-body experiences, astrology, tarot cards, um, crystals, um, you know, holistic, you know, we're, not, not that all holistic medicine is bad, um, but when it's kind of done kind of creepily, like occultically, um, that's kind of weird. Um, so let's talk about the date of the beginning. It's really hard to date, but probably in the 1800s. It, the new thought movement, spiritualism, and the Theosophical Society really, um, it's weird. If you go back to American history, let me, let me just, can I give you guys a brief history lesson of American history? Um, is that okay? In the 1830s, 40s, 50s, kind of pre-Civil War, there was a big push. There was the second great awakening in America. Not the first great awakening, but the second great awakening. The first great awakening was under Jonathan Edwards. So under the second great awakening, especially in New York, in up, like upstate New York and in the state of New York, there was intense revivals and evangelism and just like an all-out blitz on um, New York. But what had happened was is that it became so much of a show and so shallow that eventually it got called the burned over district, meaning that they had so many people hear the gospel and hear the gospel and go forward and go forward and make professions of faith and rededicate their life and do all this and try to get right with God that after a while... You had all these people going through the religious motion and nobody was really saved. And so they just kept coming in. And, and so the, what birthed, what this burnt over district produced? Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Christian science, and a lot of the cults that have come out of America came out of that movement. New Age came out of it. So like the 1840s-ish was where America had a lot of false belief systems come and it came from good intentions of evangelists during the second great awakening and something just happened weird in new york that it was just a vortex for weirdity but that's where a lot of that stuff was birthed like in the 1800s in upstate new york so that's where it started 
Religious surveys indicate that 20% of Americans accept at least some New Age beliefs, but most do not consider themselves New Agers. Now, like if you go on the street, are you a New Ager? Are you a New I'm not, you know, no. You know, do you read, do you read your astrology every week in the paper? Well, yeah. You know, do, do, you, do you like look at tea leaves and maybe go get your fortune read? Well, yeah. Do, do you go to Psychic Friends Network? Yeah. Do you have your favorite crystal? Oh, yeah. But are you a New Ager? No. You know, so, you know. I'm not a New Ager, but 20% say I, I, I hold a, maybe one belief of New Ager. Do I believe in karma? Yeah. Um, assumptions. Here's the big one. Pantheism. Pantheism says God or God or goddess is all and all is God. There's no distinction between creation and God. We're all God and everything's God. You're a God, I'm a God, we're a God, all is God. That chair's a God. This building's a God. That rock out there is a God. We're all God. And then that's pantheism. Monism is that all is one. So everything's God, and God is everything, and we're all one. They also believe in reincarnation. After you die, you'll be reborn as a baby and live another life, hopefully better. Or an animal. Or an animal. You are God. So your job here is to discover your divinity. That's big in New Age. You have a godlike spark in you. You are divine. You just haven't released your potential yet. So your lifelong quest is to discover your godhood. So you will do all these things, contemplation, meditation, all these things to try to tap into that divine spark that's in you so that you can fully reach your potential as God here on earth. And maybe you got really close in a former life and you're living a new life and you're getting closer because you've been reincarnated. And good and evil really don't exist, so there's really no absolutes in morality. You can pretty much do whatever you want. So let's talk about pantheism here for just a minute. God is all and all is God. Everything is God and God is everything. So everything that exists is God. One New Ager has written, For God is the all, and the goddess is everything, and there is nothing else that is. Now, they'll, they'll mention the term God, but here's what they think. They'll sometimes talk about God in personal terms, but most understand God is ultimately impersonal. God is often referred to as a force or an energy. And New Agers treasure the teachings of pantheism because it means that they are also gods and goddesses. So really, our ultimate goal on this earth is to discover our goddess or godhood. And we're all united together as God. You're God, I'm God, God is God, we're all God. We just haven't discovered it yet. So whatever path you choose to get to that, that's great for you. More power to you. I'm going this path, you're going that path. We may find it out that I was wrong and you were right, but it's the journey that gets us to our divine Godhood. Okay? And then monism, that is all is one. Everything that exists is one, including your sense of being distinct from everyone and everything else. Everything is really an illusion. Here's what Donald Walsh, Neil Donald Walsh says in his book, Conversations with God, a leading New Ager. The first step in finding that we are not apart from God is finding that we are not apart from each other. And until we know and realize that all of us are one, we cannot know and realize that we are God and we are one. 
We are the world. <laughs> so if you really want a religion that doesn't give you any absolutes and you can pretty much do whatever you want and pick and choose, hey, New Age is your religion. <laughs> it's kind of whatever I, what, whatever I, here's the bottom line of New Age. Whatever I need to do to discover my godhood, I'm going to do it. And I need to find something that works for me, whether it's this motivational speaker, whether it's crystals, whether it's astral projection, whether it's astrology, whether it's occultic practices, whether it's all these different weird things. I'm going to find the path that best helps me to enlightenment, to become the God that I know I already am. And if I've been reincarnated, I probably didn't do very good the first time around. It's my second chance, and maybe I'll have good karma that will get me there faster on this time around. Yes? Okay. <laughs> um, I think what makes it very confusing and very gray is that it's packaged as like very loving and very kind. Like mm-hmm. I hear all the time New Agers that say like, um, "Love is my religion." Like I don't need religion because love is my religion, and I just I think that that's why it gets confused. I think that's mm-hmm. why it's a growing. Yeah. Because it a package sounds kind of nice. Well, it does, and there's no. Um, there's no organization. We're an organization. You come to a building, you got a pastor, you got... We have an authority, a Bible. So we have an authority outside of ourselves that we submit to. We've got an organization that we're a part of, and we're accountable to our Creator. And so it's really cool to say, yeah, man, I, I, I mean, what, they're not really... I mean, they're not coming out and saying, I'm living however I want. What they're saying is my highest value is just love everybody, and that's what my belief system is. Um, but my question is, are you consistent in that? Because can you truly say love is my religion? Well, what happens if somebody murders your daughter? Are you going to be loving to them? What happens if something really bad happens to you and somebody's mean to you at work? Are you loving to them? I mean, it sounds good. Love is everything until something happens to you that makes you not want to love somebody else. So I guess to a new age, I would say, you know, that's a great philosophy to live by, love. But, you know, as a Christian... I believe the Bible says the only reason I can love is because God first loved me. And he gives me this power to love even when I don't feel like loving. And it's not coming from me. It's coming from God. So I'm with you on that. I just realized my source of love is God, and he's shown it to the, through me in Jesus. So I think you can build a bridge there and say, hey, you're, I mean, I'm not going to discount that it's all about love, but it's just I found it in Jesus, and he's given me the power to do that. And they may say, well, that's good for you. Yeah, but that, that, that in the name of Christianity, there's no love. And I, would say, how we're not and I would say, well, how many wars have been done in other countries that aren't Christian? Are they? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's, unfortunately, the flesh, the, 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 the worldly flesh part of, of people without Christ is drawn to anything where they're not accountable, where they don't have to have an authority like the Bible, and they can kind of do whatever morality they want to. That's the flavor of the day. And, and, and then feel good about it because in some ways they're spiritual. I think it's the bottom line. I don't have to feel guilt. I can be spiritual and love, but set my own rules. And then if somebody comes to me, I'm not an atheist. I, I believe in God, but, and I'm spiritual, but I'm not, I'm not accountable to an outside authority, the scripture, to dictate how I'm going to live. Outward, outward, yeah. 
let me just give you a fundamental difference between Christianity and all the other world religions. Here's the fundamental difference. Christianity says we are sinners and we acknowledge that we're sinners and we can't improve ourselves. We can't get better by doing works. The only thing that's our saving hope is to have a total change of identity from the inside out. And Christianity says we're born again. No other group or no other belief system says you experience the total transformation that comes from the outside through Jesus. Um, they either deny sin or they, you know, they have rules or it's whatever you want to do. But what sets us apart is we're realistic about sin, but we also realize that the only way to overcome it is through a total rebirth that only Jesus can do. And then he gives you the ability to follow him, but it's not. Yeah, so there's like the human, the human mind and the human heart is designed towards some type of either rules, either external or no rules, but it wants to, it wants to kind of have its, it wants to be in charge.